0: Good morning. Certainly it is good to be here. Have you ever wondered what it feels like or would feel like to be a pancake when you pour all that maple syrup on top of it? This morning I think we're gonna feel like that pancake. If you be turning your Bibles to the book of Jonah, our lesson texts will come out of the book of Jonah this morning. In Matthew chapter 12, however, the Pharisees beseech Jesus asking for a sign. And Jesus refuses to give them the sign that they wish. They're they're looking for a sign of things to come. But Jesus does, does tell him, he says, No sign shall be given unto you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Why would Jesus choose a man who was simply swallowed by a fish to offer the signs which the Pharisees were looking for? Oftentimes we attribute Jonah to be a children's story uh, that tells children about obedience to God and being faithful as they should and doing all that God has commanded. But Jesus points the Pharisees in the direction of Jonah so that they can understand the signs. Certainly when we study Jonah, we'll learn that Jonah is a type of Christ. Uh, Let's consider for a moment that both Jonah and Jesus were from Galilee. Jonah second Kings 14:25 says Jonah was from Gehether, which is near Nazareth, and Jesus was also from Nazareth. So both Jonah and Jesus were from Galilee. Both Jonah and Gina, Jesus were sent to preach. Uh, Jesus in John seven verse 16 says, "My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me." Jesus was a great preacher many times throughout the New Testament. He is called great teacher. and Jonah too was sent to preach. For in Jonah 3, verse 10, Jonah 3, verse 2, uh, God tells Jonah to pro- proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. See, Jonah was sent to Nineveh to cry out against her for her wickedness. And that was what Jonah was to preach, was to preach repentance. And also, both Jonah and Jesus were prophets. Acts 3, verses 20-22 through 22 says that Jesus was a prophet likened to Moses. And 2 Kings 14.25, which also tells that Jonah was from Hepher, also says that Jonah was a prophet. Since we're all opened up to Jonah, the first chapter, let's read verses 1-15. through 15. In case we haven't read Jonah recently, <clears throat> we'll take our minds back to this passage. Jonah 1, verses 1-15. through 15. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it. For their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea and there was a great storm on the sea. So that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid and every man cried to his God. And they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down below into the hold of the ship, lain down and fallen asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us, so that we will not perish. And each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots, so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. then they said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord of God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because Jonah had told them. So they said to him, What should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us, for the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. And he said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea, then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to the land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. And they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. And do not put innocent blood on us, for thou, O Lord, hast done as thou hast pleased. Keep that text in your mind and flip over to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 39. And on that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go over to the other side. And leaving the multitude, they took along with him, just as he was, in the boat, and other boats were with him, and there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. And he himself, being Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And being aroused, he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. In reading these passages, certainly we could infer that both Jonah and Jesus were on a ship at sea. And not only were both Jonah and Jesus on a ship at sea, but both Jonah and Jesus were on a ship at sea when a great storm arose. And while that great storm arose, both Jonah and Jesus were asleep in the hold of that ship. And while asleep, they were awakened, both Jonah and Jesus, by terrified companions. The storm was causing the sea to be raging. Water was coming into the boat, and they were terrified. And they said, How is it that you are sleeping? Do you not care that we are perishing? And so both Jonah and Jesus possessed the power to stop the storm. In verse 7 of Jonah, we see that when the men on the boat cast lots, the lot fell on Jonah, because Jonah had the power to calm the storm. And Jesus, of course, has power to do all things. And because of this power to stop the storm, both Jonah and Jesus had the power to save others. But this power to save others was only brought on by the fact that both Jonah and Jesus gave the words for others to be saved. Jonah said, Pick me up and throw me overboard and the sea will become calm for you. And Jesus says, Hush, or Peace be still. Both Jonah and Jesus gave the words for others to be saved. And certainly throughout as we study the entire Bible, we can understand that both Jonah and Jesus offered themselves as a sacrifice for others. When Jonah said, pick me up and throw me overboard, that was his sacrifice. It was his willingness to be killed for the purpose of their salvation on the boat so that the storm wouldn't uh, cause them to perish and drown in the lake. However, Jesus likewise gave the ultimate sacrifice of his life on the cross for our sins so that we would not perish and drown in the lake of fire. Both Jonah and Jesus offered themselves as a sacrifice to save others. As we continue studying in Jonah, we'll learn that the men on the boat with Jonah were Gentiles. So both Jonah and Jesus were executed by Gentiles. For not only were the men on the boat Gentiles, but the Roman cohort, which delivered Christ over to Pilate, who was the Roman governor, all of these men were also Gentiles. So both Jonah and Jesus were executed by Gentiles, but not without the insistence of the Jews. Jonah himself was a Jew from Nazareth. He was a Galilean. And Jonah said, Pick me up and throw me overboard, and the sea will become calm for you. And Jesus, likewise, the Jews insisted upon him that he be crucified. In John 19, verse 15, they said, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Because they wanted him dead. Luke twenty three twenty three it says they were insistent with loud voices asking for him to be crucified. Over and over, crucify him, crucify him. Because they wanted him dead. But both Jonah and Jesus, when they were executed by Gentiles, it only came by the insistence of the Jews, but it only came after the Gentiles declared their innocence. You see, with Jonah... The men on the boat, when they prayed to God, after rowing desperately for dry land, they didn't want to kill Jonah. They did not want to kill him, for Jonah had done no wrong to them. The men on the boat with Jonah knew that Jonah was fleeing against God, and they knew he had done something between him and God, but he had done nothing wrong to them. And that's why when he prayed, in verse 14, he says, do not put innocent blood on us, for As far as they were concerned, the blood of Jonah was innocent. And so the Gentiles deemed Jonah's innocence. With Jesus, Pilate three times said, I find no guilt in him. Pilate's wife even said, have nothing to do with this righteous man. And King Herod, after Jesus had been sent to him, Herod sent him back to Pilate, for he found no guilt in him. The thief on the cross who was hanging there, suffering For the things that he had done. He said, we are receiving punishment for what we deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And the centurion, after the crucifixion was complete. After seeing all the things that happened that day. He said, certainly this man was innocent. And to that I say, amen. Both Jonah and Jesus, after they were executed... Jonah and his being tossed overboard, representing his execution, and Jesus dying on the cross. Both Jonah and Jesus, Jesus were entombed for three days and three nights. Uh, we can see in Jonah one seventeen, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish for three days and for three nights. And Jesus too, in Matthew chapter twelve verse forty, he says. Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. That he would be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights, just as Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so both Jonah and Jesus were entombed for a period of three days. And both Jonah and Jesus... Rose out of those tombs on the third day. Uh, Jonah chapter 2, verse 10 and the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up on the dry land. And Jesus too prophesied of his uh, resurrection when he would be raised from that tomb. In Matthew chapter 17, verse 23, he prophesied they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. This is a very important truth in the matters of the resurrection. For you see, both Jonah and Jesus exhibited the footprint of God. You won't find the footprint of God in the Bible, but God-fearing scientists have deemed what they now call the footprint of God. The footprint of God is simply six surrounding one great one, one core. Uh, if you look at the honeycomb, the honeycomb is, has one center comb, and off of that center comb has six other surrounding combs. The snowflake, it has its one center core, and then off of it comes six icy fingerlets. Or the carbon atom. Carbon and hydrogen, it offers up almost 70% of our atmosphere. That carbon is one solid center with six hydrogens surrounding it. What if I mentioned to you this morning the names K2, or Kanking Junga, Makalu, Shopalo, or Dalagiri? Does anyone recognize those names? I didn't. Do we know the location of those names or what they are? Well, if I told you that Mount Everest was the tallest mountain in the world, you'd all nod your head, yes, Mount Everest is very famous. It is the tallest mountain in the world. It's located in Nepal uh, in the Himalayan mountains. What if I said the other six names which I just listed are the second through seventh, the other remaining six, tallest mountains in the world? But what if I told you they were surrounding Mount Everest? They were the foothills of Mount Everest. And the Himalayan mountains exhibit the footprint of God. Certainly that would be special. Well, Jonah too exhibits this footprint of God. For when you consider the great resurrection of Jonah, when he was... Regurgitated out of that whale, uh, sea monster's fish, fish's mouth. When you consider that as the great center miracle of Jonah, because after before that point Jonah was lost, after that point he went on to Nineveh to do as God commanded. With this being the center, we have two miracles above. When you have your center comb in the honeycomb, you'd have two above, two to the side, and two below. So to the above was the storm the great miracle of the storm which arose. It arose at the moment that they were on the ship. It came in a a great sudden nature, and it came with great uh, vastness, and the sea was raging because of it. And after Jonah had fled from the presence of God, and he was then swallowed by the fish, and then he was sent to Nineveh, after Nineveh had repented because of Jonah's preaching, Jonah went and sat on a hill. Because he was mad, bitter, sullen. Because he didn't want Nineveh to be saved. Nineveh was wicked. And he didn't want them to have salvation. Because they were so wicked. And so when God offered them compassion, Jonah was mad and upset. And so God sent to cause Jonah discomfort. He sent a scorching east wind. We find this in Jonah 4, verse 8. God sent a scorching east wind to come and cause great discomfort upon Jonah. (sighs) These two things, the storm and the east wind, are miracles from above. At dead level, we find a miracle of a plant that grows. Uh, Some translations may call it a gourd. But this plant has its roots below the surface, but it, it extended above Jonah. It offered him shade from the sun, and Jonah was greatly pleased. And so this was a miracle at dead level. Was the plant that grew overnight. And then down below, God offered a worm which ate up that plant that God caused to grow overnight. The worm ate it overnight. Another great miracle. And Jonah again was, once again, he was upset again because he was displeased with God. Uh, Back up to dead level, we have the great calm that arose on the sea when Jonah was tossed overboard. And finally, the seventh and last miracle surrounding the resurrection of Jonah is the great whale, the great fish, which uh, God appointed to swallow Jonah. And so knowing that Jesus had told the Pharisees to search the scriptures of Jonah for signs which had come to pass of Jesus, certainly Jesus exhibits the footprint of God as well. If you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27, Most of our text for this portion of our lesson will come from this chapter. With the resurrection of Christ being the pinnacle moment of, the, of Christ's victory over Satan. Because when Christ was resurrected from death, he defeated Satan with Satan's own sword, which was death. And likewise, Christ's resurrection is pinnacle to our victory as well. For when we, Romans 6, 3, and 4, when we're buried with Christ in baptism, we're then raised out of that water to walk in newness of life. Just as Christ was raised from that tomb. And when Christ was raised out of that tomb, He was victorious over Satan. When we were raised out of the water grave of baptism, we too are crowned victorious. The second miracle regarding Christ's crucifixion and His resurrection is The darkness. If you read Matthew chapter 27, verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. So there was a three hour period there of darkness. Amos chapter 8, verse 9 speaks of this darkness. God says, I shall make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. Certainly this was a miracle. But if you notice, in Matthew chapter 27, we only have verse 45 to comment on the darkness. Other than that, the scriptures are silent about the things that went on. For the first three hours of Christ's crucifixion, the men around him offered abuse at him. They spat upon him and cursed him and mocked him and said humiliating things. But the last three hours, they were silent. The smirks on their faces were frozen in darkness. In 1 Samuel 2 verses 9 and 10 comments on this. It says the wicked will be silenced in darkness. Certainly the darkness is a great miracle. And with the darkness when Christ was suffering on the cross for our sins we know that he was suffering hell here on earth. And hell is a place noted as a place of outer darkness. A place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so isn't it fitting that there would be darkness over the face of the earth? While Christ suffered the weeping and the gnashing of teeth, and a place of outer darkness encompassed the earth. But it also encompassed the earth so that no man could go home and say, I saw it all. I saw the man. I saw the wrath of God poured out upon him. No man could do that. Because no man could see it all. No man truly knows how bad the hell that Jesus suffered really was. For Christ himself is the only man who has suffered hell. And he came out of it victorious. And certainly, as the men gathered around Jesus that day, inside that darkness, you you know they had to have wondered, with a darkness that you could feel if the sun would ever rise again. Will the light ever shine so brightly as it had before? Friends, I tell you that three hours later, the sun did rise again, and it's been shining brightly ever since. And three days later, the sun rose again, and his light shines brightly ever since. The third miracle surrounding Christ's resurrection was the veil of the temple. The veil of the temple, in Matthew chapter 27, verse 51 And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. I think we should understand the magnificent size of this veil. This was not a curtain that we find over a window. No, it was 60 feet tall and 30 feet wide. And it was the thickness of a man's hand, more than four inches thick. Acts chapter 6 verse 7 says a great many number of priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Why? Why were so many priests becoming obedient to the faith? But when you consider that Christ is crucified for the Passover. And so, each priest had to take for himself a Passover lamb to slay it. And so with all these great number of priests inside that temple, as they're taking their lamb to slay it for their sins... The true Lamb of God is outside being hung on the cross for their sins. And at the very same moment that Christ died, the veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom. Can you imagine the noise that it made? The sound as those fibers were broke loose and torn from each other. We rip our jeans and suddenly you know it. There's no doubt about it. And that's just a little little bitty thread. Yes, the veil of the temple. There was no doubt each, each man and each priest inside that temple knew exactly what had happened. And each man saw that it was ripped from top to bottom where only the finger of God could cut it. There was no doubt about it. And a great many, many number of priests were becoming obedient to the faith because of it. The fourth miracle surrounding Christ's resurrection is the earthquake. Continuing in Matthew chapter twenty seven fifty one, And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The timing of this great earthquake is miraculous in nature, for it occurred just like the veil at the very same moment that Christ died on the cross. More spectacular than the timing is the fact that it was isolated to just Mount Calvary. The temple in Jerusalem, just a short distance away, was unaffected. Its rocks and its boulders that made the temple itself still stood perfectly intact. However, the rocks on Mount Calvary that were split and jutted up out of the ground, those can still be seen today because of their magnificent size. The fifth miracle is the opening of the tombs. When we continue reading in 52, and the tombs were opened. Yes, the opening of a tomb. You may you may say, well, that's not quite a miracle, because with the earthquake happening on Mount Calvary, all those tombs could have been opened. But the tombs that were opened were all over Jerusalem, and they wouldn't have been opened because of the earthquake. But even more spectacular than the opening of the tombs, continuing, continuing on to the sixth miracle, is the revival of only the saints. And so therefore the tombs of only the saints were opened. And on the third day, after Christ was resurrected in verse 53, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. So we have the opening of the tombs as a miracle of God surrounding the resurrection. We have the revival of only the saints, only those who were found righteous in the sight of God to appear after His resurrection. And finally, we have the undisturbed grave clothes. The last and final miracle. If you read from a New King James or New International Version Bible, Uh, you'll read that the grave's clothes, uh, the head cloth especially, was folded. However, W.E. Vine, he is a uh, scholar of Old Testament, New Testament words. In this particular book which I have, uh, Vine's Expository Dictionary, he comments on the word which the New King James and the New International Version quote as folded. He comments on it. Uh, Some... Let's see, the King James uses wrapped together. And he said this is the correct rendition, is wrapped together, uh, because it suggests that just as with the body wrappings, the headcloth was lying as it had been rolled around his head, an evidence to those who looked into the tomb of the fact of his resurrection without any disturbance of the wrappings, either by friend or foe, or when the change took place. Uh, the common burial procedure, you would... We've all seen the mummy uh, and how they're wrapped, they're bound together with a type of gauze. Your whole body is bound up up to your neck. And then your head has a certain, its own wrappings. Well, when Jesus was resurrected, he came through those wrappings. And W.E. Vine says the actual, from the scrolls, that translated should mean that it did not move. It was wrapped as if it had still been around his head and it would have been in the same place the separation that you read in your bibles about it being separated in John 19 or in John 20 rather sorry in John 20 it says there was a separation between the head and the body well that would have been between the two different wrappings uh, as Jesus body rose through it there would have been a gap there between the head and the body where the neck had been and so there would have been two and how else too if the head wrapping had been moved Or disturbed, how else could the angels, there were two angels, how could one sit at his head and at his feet? Yes, the linen wrappings of Jesus had to be undisturbed. And without this undisturbed grave clothes, then there is no seventh miracle of God revolving Calvary. And there is no pattern which Jesus follows. When John entered into this tomb, it says that he believed. There was no doubt it was proof, just as W. Vine says it was evidence. And John believed because they were undisturbed. And continuing on, both Jonah and Jesus were signs to the loss of their impending doom. Jonah was commanded to go preach into Nineveh. Because of their wickedness, God sent Jonah to crowd against them and And so Jonah Jonah, Jonah chapter 3 verse 4, he says, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Have you ever wondered why Jonah fled from Nineveh the first time when God told him to go? No doubt they were wicked, because that's the reason Jonah was sent. But if we understand how wicked Nineveh really was, perhaps we won't look down on Jonah so harshly. Nineveh was the forefront of understanding the body movements, understanding how the body functioned and how it worked, understanding how the muscles cause an arm to outstretch or leg to run. They understood all those things. And they were at the forefront of it. And you might say that they spent meticulous study and tests to figure out this great knowledge that they had. But Nineveh was wicked. This knowledge of how the human body worked and functioned was because they were notorious for skinning their enemies alive and watching the bodies twitch and understanding how the muscles caused a certain reaction. Nineveh was wicked. Is there no doubt why Jonah fled? Who, Who here wouldn't have fled from such a wicked and awful nation? But the Ninevites were wicked. And Jonah went and he cried out against them and they repented. Well, Jesus too being assigned to the lost of their impending doom. To the Jews in Mark chapter 13, verse 2, Jesus says, Not one stone will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. Jesus called for the Jews to repent of their wickedness. But unlike the Ninevites, the Jews never did repent. And so God tore down in the destruction of Jerusalem, he tore down their religion. The Jews have no more to practice. They have nothing to base their religion on, because he tore it down, he tore it asunder. And so both Jonah and Jesus were signs of the loss of their impending doom. Both Jonah and Jesus brought salvation to the Gentiles. Jonah, when he preached to Nineveh, Nineveh was Gentiles. Because he delivered God's word, they were saved. They repented and they had salvation. And Jesus too, in First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, we too have salvation in Christ. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you. Because of Jesus Christ and the great things that He has done for us. We have in heaven a place reserved for us. We have salvation. Because both Jonah and Jesus offer salvation to the Gentiles. And last but not least, both Jonah and Jesus were assigned to two graves. In Iraq, there are two mounds, two burials that are known. One of which is known as Kayunjik which means the palace of Sennacherib. And it is, notor- is commonly known that the king of Sennacherib is buried there. Uh, next to that is a lesser, smaller mound called Yunus, which is translated Hebrew prophet is buried here. Uh, certainly this Hebrew prophet is Jonah. And the second grave of Jonah is back home in Nazareth. Uh, he has a grave site located there. So both Jonah and Jesus have been assigned to two graves. If you flip over in your Bible to Acts or Acts or Isaiah chapter 53, Isaiah 53 verse 9. Speaking of Christ, his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. You see, Christ was supposed to be buried with the two thieves, the wicked men, who he died on the cross with. But Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, who had his own sepulcher, his own tomb, came and begged for the body of Jesus. So Jesus was assigned to two graves. He was assigned to the grave with the wicked men. Yet in his death, he was with the rich man. And certainly understanding everything that we've gone through this morning, We can understand that Jonah is a type of Christ. And so when you consider that Jonah too had the option of being two graves, one of which was with a rich man, the other was back home in Nazareth among wicked men, those of his hometown, which was ultimately destroyed. (laughs) Which one do you think Jonah was buried in? Was he assigned to the grave with wicked men? Or yet, was he in his death with a rich man? And so Jonah is a type of Christ. And this morning, I have one of the things that you might be eager to know. In Jonah chapter one verse three, it says, "Jonah went down and prayed to the because he had laid his He went to the top of the porch, and he told the Lot is chapter 13 verse 12. The that Lot is to his the the first I you, the the of We're to that day, day, they teach in fields. They in the mountains. They teach in the valleys. They teach in the forests. They teach in the deserts. They teach in the cities. They teach in the villages. They teach in the schools. They teach in the universities. They teach in the libraries. They teach in the museums. They teach in the theaters. They teach in the parks. They teach in the gardens. They teach in the homes. They teach in the hospitals. They teach in the prisons. They teach in the factories. They teach in the farms. They teach in the mines. They teach in the ships. They teach in the planes. They teach in the trains. They teach in the cars. They teach in the bikes. They teach in the boats. They teach in the helicopters. They teach in the drones. They teach in the robots. They teach in the aliens. They teach in the ghosts. They teach in the monsters. They teach in the dragons. They teach in the unicorns. They teach in the fairies. They teach in the elves. They teach in the dwarves. They teach in I'm going to go